Hey, would you mind introducing yourself for everybody? Sure thing. My name is Rick Carr. I'm the farm director at Rodale Institute. Can you tell me a little bit about the Rodale Institute, what it is that you guys do? Absolutely. We are a research, outreach, and education institution for regenerative organic agriculture. And so most of our interests are in pursuing the best practices for transitioning and organic farmers. And that can be from anything from backyard gardening to large-scale agriculture. Hey, do you see that there is a shift or are you noticing at the Institute that there is a shift towards regenerative agriculture? Certainly there is. It's becoming a, a buzzword among farmers, especially the organic farmers. They want to know how they can be more progressive. And the notion of just organic has changed over the last 15 years with certain policy changes. And some of those have gone backwards, some have gone forwards. But in a way, farmers feel it's been a, a little stagnant. And so they want to know how they could be how they could be better farmers for the soil and for the health of their customers. So unlike sustainable, the term sustainable is more you could sustain something indefinitely, but it could also be bad. You know, somebody says our CEO Jeff Moyer, he had a great analogy for the term sustainable. It's you could say sustainable agriculture, but and people know what that means. And it's, it's a positive meaning, but you would never use the term sustainable marriage. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds negative. Right. And so sustaining a negative habit is still sustainable. And so what we mean by regenerative is can tomorrow be better than today? And is today better than yesterday? So we're always trying to build on what uh, the day we did previously. So how does regenerative agriculture differ from organic agriculture? To be regenerative organic farmer, you have to meet all the standards of the National Organic Program. Uh, to be have the regenerative organic seal, you have to go above what the organic standards are. And that's going to be anything from animal welfare, it's going to be from soil health, and then the farmer welfare. So it takes into those three pillars, and there's somewhat of a point system, and, and we're still developing this, and we're still trialing it among several different farms, uh, what it takes. So the less you disturb the soil, the better, the more regenerative you are. And it's something that you go in time. So it was this year more regenerative than last year. And so it's one of those kind of audits that you get, just like you do as an organic farmer. We have we get audited every year. Any organic farmer gets audited by their uh, certifier, and they have to meet certain standards by the National Organic Program. And so this is going to be the same thing, but it's more of comparing year to year, not just did you meet the standards. Okay. So what are some practices that people can do to kind of get started on that regenerative path? If it's on the regenerative path, first, you know, make sure you're an organic farmer or you're certified organic. And this, this is for the agricultural side. So it's not completely necessary for a backyard farmer or a homesteader uh, that really doesn't need to be certified. But basically, you're looking at, am I disturbing the soil? Am I killing every year? Am I incorporating animals into my operation that can reduce the need for fertilizer? So I'm using the animal fertilizer. They serve a purpose. They're basically a tool for growing my, my vegetables or my crops. And then are we treating our farmers well? So are we paying them healthy wages? Those are the livable wages. Those are the basic basic steps 
that you want to look at when you are thinking regeneratively. And what about for someone on a smaller scale, like just a, a backyard gardener? I hear you mention disturbing the soil. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because uh, I know like, let's say after I finish growing, I don't know, tomatoes or peppers and they're spent and I'm ready to pull them out. Should I not just be yanking them out of the soil? It's not that clear. Okay. A um, decision. It, it, every crop requires a different treatment. You leave tomatoes there and they get septoria leaf blight, which my backyard almost gets every year. <laughs> and if I leave it there, it's just going to get worse. So I remove them and I compost them. And that helps to destroy the pathogen. Now, disturbing the soil, it's one of those, are you tilling every year in your soil? How deep are you tilling? So you have a rototiller and you set it to the maximum depth. Is that necessary? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. It all depends on maybe the crop that you're growing. Or do you even have to do that in your backyard? I've tried not doing it and I did notice a reduce in yield just from observation when growing my variety of plants. I have a fairly large garden in my backyard and we try to grow as much as we can. And I didn't till that year. The only tillage I did is when I was putting the transplants in the ground, I stuck a trowel in as much as I could to bust up the soil so I could get that root ball in there. And the following year, I did till. But I'm also adding compost every year. I do leaf mulch. And so that helps reduce some of the cultivating that I'm doing, the, especially the leaf mulch, so I don't have to disturb the soil throughout the season. So it all depends on your backyard. Not every backyard is created equal. And are you maximizing your output while minimizing your input? I think that's the way you got to think about it. So compost is the only thing I add to my soil, and I, I feel content with that. All right, we're going to get into compost, but I have a, another question for you. You just said compost is the only thing you add, so you don't use any sort of granular fertilizers or anything else in your garden, simply compost. Not at all. It's not necessary in my backyard. I do operate a large-scale composting facility, so I have a lot at my disposal. That doesn't mean I'm adding several inches. I add maybe a quarter inch every year, and I also add leaf mulch. So every fall, whatever leaves I don't pile up for my compost pile to save for the following year, they get raked on to my garden in October, late October, November. They get raked on. That helps encourage earthworm activity. And then in the springtime, I rake them back off when ready to start planting for lettuce and your cold crop. Let me ask, how long have you been doing this where you just only add compost? And then second, have you noticed a difference in yield going from if you ever did even use any sort of extra fertilizer to solely using compost? I've never put down anything other than compost. I think part of it is I'm a cheapskate. I don't want to go buy fertilizer. <laughs> Probably the most honest answer, but I just compost everything in my household that I possibly can. And that's enough fertilizer for me. And I know well enough of what compost can provide in nutrients, just given the research that I've done here at Rodell and back in school. And that seems to be enough. So I can't comment if I should be putting extra fertilizer down in my backyard. For me, my backyard garden's more therapy than trying to sustain my family. Mm-hmm. It's going out in the garden, pulling weeds, feeling the sunshine, and getting my kids out there and helping me harvest, picking cherry tomatoes. It's therapeutic. So I get more than I can grow, way more than I eat, and so a lot of it gets wasted, but it's 
still fine with me because my kids get to learn and me and my wife enjoy it and it's, it's therapy. So getting more per square foot is, I already have more than I need. So I'm not going to go and buy fertilizer that's going to produce larger yields. All right. So you said that you've done a lot of research on compost and you work at a large composting facility. So I have a question for you. What are some of the most effective ways for really backyard gardeners to compost? There are a small handful of of tips that I would give out to any backyard composter. And this is even the beginner. And the first one is that there's no one right way to compost. There's a lot of bad ways, but no one right way. So you have to pick what system, what methodology works best for you, your household, and your backyard. So if you have a few examples of different backyards, if you are in a rural area and you have an acre of land with very few neighbors and you don't have to worry about bears or maybe other large animals, you can just have a pile on the ground that is out of sight and out of mind. And that still is that's probably one of the most common ways of doing it in the United States. Mm-hmm. Just a pile on the ground, given how many backyards there are that do concrete. Let's move towards the suburbs. Now you have a neighbor that joins your property. A pile on the ground is unsightly and takes up space. So now you have a quarter acre of land and you want to start containing that. And there's a lot of different composting bins out there. And you have to choose what size bin based on the volume of material that you generate. And you can think about it as if you are a single person, if you are a couple, or if you are a family of one, two, or three, you generate more waste per person. Actually, according to the EPA, the average person generates 4.4 pounds of municipal solid waste per day. And that's all of your waste, everything that goes to your trash, everything that goes in your trash can and recycling. And about 21 or 24 percent of that, can't recall offhand, is food waste. So that's a great deal. That's going to be about a pound of food waste per day. And so you have to figure that's what every individual is going to be producing on average. So if you are a larger family, you're going to need a bigger size bin. So the, one of the most classic purchasable bins is going to be the uh, Earth Machine kind of the Darth Vader-looking helmet, that's very small. That's one of the smaller bins, plastic, and it helps to keep things out of sight because it's all contained. But uh, you're going to need something much larger if it's a family, if you have kids. And so one of my things that I recommend is something that's durable, it's relatively cheap, lasts a long time, and keeps things, things contained. It's a welded wire bin, and you can get that in many different heights. And what you want to what you want to go for is is basically a cubic yard in size. That's our bare minimum that would that we would recommend for a backyard effective, efficient composting. The cubic yard. So you make it three feet in diameter when you take this welded wire and you circle it up, kind of zip tie it together or use little twisty ties. And what I like to do is I set mine on top of a pallet. Basically, you make it the shape of the diameter of the pallet. And putting it on a pallet keeps it elevated, keeps everything off the ground. So if it gets too wet, it could drain out. And if things are really cooking, theoretically, you would get a convection oven system where air can come up underneath of it. Uh, Cool air comes up and hot air rises. If you have even larger family or you're a homesteader and you have a fairly large garden or animals, 
you're going to need something a little bit bigger. And so what I would suggest in that situation is you go to pallet bins, where you take typical wood pallets and you stack them upright and put it into square containers, and you could do multiple containers that way. So with the pallet bins that you just described, do you suggest that people put a pallet underneath the bottom as well? That's a great question. And in that situation, I wouldn't. You're dealing with large volumes and mostly because when you're shoveling it out later on, that pallet's going to get in your way. I really haven't seen anybody do that, so I don't think it's entirely necessary. Now, you mentioned the welded wire bin that was a cubic yard in size. You said put a pallet underneath. And I understand the, I guess, the science behind it. I always thought that you wanted your compost to be in contact with the ground beneath it. But when you mentioned that wire bin, you said to put a pallet underneath it. Yeah, I enjoy having a pallet underneath mine. One, because it keeps my area contained, keeps it neat and I mean, things are still going to find their way into your, your pile. So worms are going to climb up because as stuff breaks down, it's going to fall through the pallet. And then eventually it's going to be at the pallet and at the top of it, and it can, things can move through. But for me, it's more of keeping my area neat and contained is the big one. And the leaching out, if, if you uh, have excessive water, it is a way for it to leach out and not just stay stagnant in the pile. And that welded wire bin that you're describing, did you say that was for a family of four, or was that for a couple? I've been using the welded wire since I started composting over a decade ago, and I started out with just my wife and I. It works. I mean, it's the size, it's the durability, and uh, I've moved, so I've replaced it. But for the last, since I've been at Rodale now, almost eight years, I've had the same welded wire bin, and it's not degrading one bit. And uh, as far as price-wise goes and durability, I picked the lowest gauge. It's the most cost-effective, and for the price, it's going to be get the two-by-four-inch openings. You don't need the uh, quarter-inch or half-inch openings. It's not worth the cost. Can you break down your process of adding to your compost bin? I'm just... We're staying on this welded wire bin because I like the idea. I think I'm going to build one in my yard later this weekend. So (laughs) how often are you adding your materials to this bin? And yeah, we'll start with that. How often are you adding your materials? I'm going to start. I'm not going to answer that just yet. Okay. I think you'll get it at the end. Okay. But the best way to think of it is from your kitchen to the pile. And so at my kitchen, and this is my system that I've come up, I would say in some ways I'm lazy. I want to go and play with my kids. I don't want to have to work on my compost bin. (laughs) And sometimes we do that all together. But figured out, and this is nothing new. Other people have done this. But I've, in a way, mastered this system of low maintenance, low effort, maximum output. And so at my kitchen counter, I have a container that I'm collecting all my compostables, all my food waste, anything that can break down. I recycle all my paper products as much as possible, but any soiled napkins, paper plates, that goes into my compost bin. So that's right there, easy access, right next to my sink. And you can get, depending on how much you generate, so when it was just my wife and I, uh, we had a, a quart-sized container, and that got filled maybe every three days or so. And now I've gone to almost a gallon-and-a-half container kind of bucket. doesn't take up much space. I keep it clean and neat. 
and there's a lid on it. So you don't see things and you really don't smell it too much either. If you are smelling it, then you take it out. Right. So when that gets full, I have a five gallon bucket right out my back door, kind of out of sight. And it's right there, right out my back door that if it's raining or if there's a lot of snow on the ground, I can quickly open it keeping the door open and just dump my kitchen container into that. And then I repeat that however long that takes. And when the five gallon bucket gets full, then it's time to go to the compost bin. So that's going to be my batch of compost that I'm adding. And the more volume of waste material that you're adding, the better chance of it breaking down uh, because more volume means things can heat up a little bit better, a little more faster. Microbial activities are taking place at um, a higher rate. So decomposition is going to be operating at greater volume. It's always operating, but now you're mixing things together at a greater volume. And so now I'm going to my compost bin and I'm going to do my batch. All right, rule number two in backyard composting. First rule is no one right way to do it. Rule number two is no food showing. So I'm not just going to take that five-gallon bucket and dump it in there. I have to do rule number three. It's lasagna layering. So that's how we achieve no food showing. We lasagna layer. And the way to do that is we take our browns and greens. Brown material is going to be woody material, typically dry, brittle material, leaves, straw, wood chips, sawdust, paper, newspaper, that kind of stuff. Higher in carbon compared to our green material, which is more nitrogenous. It's going to be wet, doesn't have to be green, but it's going to be all of your food waste and all the stuff that if you thought about it and you left it lay out, it's the stuff we think rots and smells. Whereas your brown material, that's going to be, if you let it lay out, it might rot, but it's going to smell earthy. All right, so I have to manage my browns and greens at my compost pile. And so I'm going to lasagna layer. And so my first layer is going to be a layer of brown material. Leaves are one of my most favorite. They're free. If you live anywhere in Pennsylvania, you get it every year and it's guaranteed. You just have to store them. So I have my leaves. I'm going to make a nest, a pretty generous nest of leaves. And it's going to be maybe six inches deep. And it's going to be a depression in the middle. And maybe give yourself about four to six inches around the edge of the, the pile, the welded wire bin, I guess. And I'm going to take my bucket of food waste, put that into the middle of the nest, spread it out, kind of lay, level it. You don't want domes in your compost bin. You want it nice and level. It improves kind of space efficiency in your in your bin. And then I'm going to cover it with another layer of brown material so that your pile should look like just a pile of leaves. No food should be shown. If you accomplish that, then one, you're going to avoid nearly all the odors that can come from your bin. Two, you're not going to have any flies because the flies require fruit flies and even house flies. They require the surface to be exposed to land on. They're not going to bury themselves in there. And three, you're going to avoid any other large pests that you might have. If you're in the suburbs, you might have uh, raccoons, possums, or something like that. And you're going to avoid a lot of those issues. But the, probably the biggest one, if you're in urban or even suburb setting, you're going to avoid angry neighbors. Neighbors don't want to see a pile of food waste. It's kind of gross and it's unsightly. So no food show. And to do that, you lasagna layer. And once you do that, you go back and start it all over again. So you're consistently, constantly adding to this bin until it reaches the top? In the compost bin, you're, you're asking? Yes, in your welded wire bin, you're repeating this process with the leaves, your food, then leaves, then food. You'll repeat that process until you get to the top of your wire bin? Exactly. 
I'm doing that 365 days out of the year. But I only go out to my bins maybe once a month. I've now gone to our, I have three five-gallon buckets because I want to reduce the number of times I have to go and dump them. And so that's just reducing labor. Because dumping one bucket is no different than dumping three buckets. It's only a matter of seconds or a couple minutes more of effort. So I'm doing that repeatedly throughout the year. Summer, winter, doesn't matter. And I have, my bin is four feet tall, welded wire bin. And I think last year I did fill it uh, in the late winter, uh, but it's always breaking down. It's either breaking down or getting more compacted as you put more material into it. And so during decomposition, things get into break down to smaller particles. So your bin's shrinking, especially during the summertime, it, it's shrinking very heavily. And so it's very difficult to actually fill a bin. And come springtime, it, it, your bin might freeze solid and there's very low activity. Uh, but in spring, things get warmer. March, uh, in these, this part, is starting to get warmer. And people are starting to go outside more and getting their gardens prepped and maybe putting their cold crops in. And you start doing your composting again. And you might start, that's, that's the time I harvest my finished material. That was my next question. How often are you harvesting your compost from this bin? I harvest every year. Every springtime I harvest and I don't do it any other time. The reason is there's more to my system and this is more of just reducing the amount of effort and the amount of guesswork of composting. So I don't have just one welded wire bin. I have two of them set up and there's one that I consider my active bin, the one that I'm always adding to. Now every springtime comes and I'm ready to put compost down on my garden. I take that active bin and I turn it. I take all that material and I dump it into a second bin. This bin's only three feet high. And I'm taking all that, put it into the second bin, and then I leave it for another year. The reason is the stuff at the bottom, the bottom half of your bin, your active bin that you're always adding to is I can almost say with certainty it's finished material. But there's a gray area in that that you're not sure if it's finished and you're playing name that food. What does this look like? <laughs> and you can still see maybe there's a corn cob or something a little bit more woody that's there. It's just not ready yet. Things are a little slimy. I mean, in come March, there might be... I might have just added to the top of it. So I have done that for a few years of sorting through what's finished and what's not. And I felt that it's not necessary. So if you're just starting, you're not going to get compost the first year unless you want to sort through that material of the bottom half. But if you're you know, a seasoned composter, take that batch, dump it into your second pile or your second bin, leave it go for one full year. And meanwhile, you're adding to the active bin nonstop. And come the second year, with certainty, the all the contents in that second bin are finished. And I can harvest that without thinking. So I take all of that and I can put that into my, after I harvest that second bin, I take the first bin and put it into that second bin. And so I just repeat that every year. So I get compost. It takes two years if you're just starting, but every year after that, you have compost. Okay. So what about those systems? I see all sort of tumblers that claim that you can have finished compost in as little as 30 days or 60 days. What are your thoughts on I guess, on those claims. I don't think you can have finished material within 30 days, especially with those little tumblers. You just don't have the volume to heat up. I will say that it does make 
turning a little bit easier and you're doing things in batches. So even though you have a tumbler and you could tumble it a couple times a week or once a week, and it will break down a little bit faster. Turning does expose surfaces to uh, microbial decomposition that were not available previously. But the thing is, what do you do with that five-gallon bucket that you have waiting that's now full of food waste? You have to add that to your tumbler, and now you're mixing in partially finished or finished material with fresh material. So you have to take that whole batch and let that sit somewhere else. You still have to, it's not a, a finishing job. Right. I I'll say that. You still have to let that sit so that you can process your fresh material. So some people have two tumblers or some people just have the one that they'll use and then they'll dump that, let it sit. My experience with the tumblers is that I can't get the moisture right. And I hear this a lot from uh, my audience and the people I that come to the workshops and educate is that they have the same issue, either too wet or too dry. It's just difficult to get the moisture just right. And if it's too wet, you're just making balls of compost that won't break down. Too dry, the microbes don't have what they need to survive. And if they're not surviving, they're not breaking down your material. Yeah, that's one thing I noticed. I used to have a tumbler. And it really bothered me that I could only do things in batches. And I never achieved that 30 to 60 day fully broken down compost that the box claimed I would get. Yeah. I mean, in my large scale composting facility where I have the best access to composting, it takes me about, I could probably do it in about three months. Recorded, I've made it as fast as four months, but here at Rodale, in the agricultural setting, there's no rush for compost. We're only applying in the spring or fall, so making it four months just means it sits around and weed seeds can start growing on top of it. Yeah. Anything blowing onto it can start growing. So I easily make it in six months. Stuff I have going right now is a few weeks away from finishing, and I started that in the early spring. So, yeah, 30 days is just that's a false plan. Yeah, that's what I thought also. Hey, so how did you become a composting expert? I'm a master composter to be exact. Oh, sorry. And I, I wear that hat with pride. Yeah. It's a funny story. Uh, my father, he had a compost. He had a heap. That's what we call it when you just throw things. And a lot of people have compost heaps. So I remember that, but that didn't influence me. I remember steam coming out. and a lot of the grass that he was throwing in there. I remember the smell of the composting grass. and But that didn't really influence me. When I went to um, Ithaca, New York, now I was uh, studying at Cornell. And uh, me and uh, another gentleman, Peter Hyde, we were working together on onion diseases. We're the only two guys at Cornell studying onion diseases. It's kind of funny to think about it when you have a university that is trying to cure cancer. We're trying to save a vegetable that makes you cry. <laughs> and so <laughs> he was wearing a hat that said Master Composter on it. Master Composter of Tompkins County. And through the Cornell Cooperative Extension. And he was wearing that hat. I thought that was just a really cool looking hat. It just said Master Composter. It could have said Master anything. <laughs> and that's what I saw. And I said, how did you get that hat? I want one of those. He told me, you got to go through the program. So that was in 2007. And every spring, they have a eight-week program similar to Master Gardeners, where it's a volunteer-based program, education, outreach. 
and, but this is specific for composting. 2008, became a master composter, never looked back, and I took it in every direction I could from all the outreach and education of composting to research. I got a degree in using a master's degree in um, studying how compost can suppress plant diseases. And then when I was getting tired in the lab, I took it to the other extreme of large-scale compost production, moved to Argentina, managed a uh, composting operation down there, and vermicomposting, all large-scale on a farm, and decided to come back. And landed a job at Rodale as the uh, when I first got hired, I was the compost production specialist, and now I've worked my way. I still have the compost yard here that uh, I manage, uh, as well as all the farming activities across all of our seven campuses that we have. I like the term master composter. I want to look to see if I can take a class down here because I would love a hat that said master composter. <laughs> I still wear the hat, even though. Rodale's in the back of it, <laughs> and Master Composer's in the front. Nice. We're going to go back to the wire bin method that you were talking about, and you just mentioned you put down a layer of brown, then a layer of green. Is there a proper ratio or a necessary ratio uh, between your browns and your greens to achieve high-quality compost? I get that question all the time, and it, there's no easy answer, and it frustrates a lot of my audience because that's what they want. It all depends on that food slop that you have. And really, you're managing four ingredients when you look at compost at every scale. At my large scale, where I'm using a tractor and a bucket loader to move waste material to the buckets that you have, the five-gallon buckets that you have in your backyard, we're really only managing four ingredients. And these four ingredients are going to be directly or inversely related to each other. And we use the acronym WONC, W-O-N-C, to uh, describe these four ingredients. It's going to be water, oxygen, nitrogen, and carbon. So all of your materials, your browns and greens, are going to contain some level of water, oxygen, nitrogen, and carbon. And let's just take two of them, water and nitrogen. So our nitrogenous materials, we're going to call them the green ones, and they're going to be heavier in water, typically heavier in water. So that's, that, that's your food waste. The food waste is going to be pretty heavy in water, but your carbon and oxygen materials are going to be exactly opposite. They're going to be inversely related. So your nitrogenous material, green materials, they're going to have less oxygen because they're going to have more water content. Whereas your leaves, they're going to have more oxygen content. A pile of leaves looks fluffy, has more oxygen in it compared to how much water it is. So we're always looking at those. So when I'm dumping in my five-gallon bucket, I'm kind of observing how much water is present and just how sloppy it is. Is it dripping out of the bucket? And then I have to balance that with enough oxygen and carbon material so that I can create an aerobic environment, the decomposition, aerobic decomposition, so that we're not going to generate odor. But if I have too much carbon material, then it's not enough water and the microbes can't survive. So you're looking at that, and what I've found, it really depends on your the materials you're adding. If you don't do food waste, you're going to have a lot, of, but you're still composting in your backyard, you might have yard debris. That's going to be a more carbon material, even though it might be green. So right now we're cutting back our daffodil leaves, and although it's green, when it dries, there's still not much nitrogen in those leaves. And when it dries down, it's not going to really rot. So I can treat it almost as leaf material. And I don't have to 
do all the nesting, the lasagna layering. But we're doing the food waste. I think my short answer after going through all that is <laughs> you have a five-gallon bucket of food waste. It's going to take three to five buckets of leaves to balance that out. And it really all depends. Uh, late summer, I'm processing tomatoes to make sauce. I have a lot of wet tomato waste. That's going to take five times the volume of brown material to balance all that water. We want the leaves to to absorb a lot of the water. Okay. So now you mentioned for brown materials, can you also use, let's say you have a pile of wood chips in your backyard. Could you use the wood chips for brown materials? Certainly you can. The only thing that anybody who's ever composted wood chips is they take a lot longer to break down. So they probably won't be broken down in two years. Okay. It's not a bad thing, but and if you're screening your compost, you can take, you can screen out the wood chips and put them right back into your active bin as another brown layer. Okay, that's good to know. All right, so you mentioned that you ended up in Argentina at a vermicomposting center? Uh, not a vermicomposting center. It's an uh, organic farm, eight hours drive north of Buenos Aires, and it was an active farm. It was about 2,600-acre farm that's quite diverse, anything from nut trees to grains to livestock. They had a vegetable garden, and what I was brought down for, invited down for, was to operate the large-scale composting operations that they had, and they had vermicomposting, a large-scale vermicomposting operation, outdoor vermicomposting, as well as the um, making liquid compost extracts and compost teas, and because of my research background, what they enjoyed having me do was do a lot of the application and then the evaluation of you know, how things work. Okay. So do you think that vermicomposting is a good way for, let's say, someone who maybe just has an apartment or a balcony, a small area with no real outdoor space? Do you think vermicomposting is a good way for them to compost? Absolutely. It's good for that. It's also good for children. I rarely meet a child when I do a lot of the outreach that doesn't want to dig for worms in your compost bin or in your uh, vermicompost bin. And so they, they get a piece of education for it. For the person that lives in an apartment, it's one of probably three ways that you can get rid of your food waste. Uh, you can compost your food waste to stop throwing it in the trash. But the only caveat is that you can't just throw everything in there. Vermicomposting is core is animal husbandry. You have to take care of the worms. They're, they're your workers. The worms aren't doing it alone. There's an entire ecosystem operating inside of a worm bin. So there's a lot of microbes, arthropods that are also breaking down your food waste. But the worms, they can't tolerate certain materials. So the things that you, people say you shouldn't put in your backyard compost, but really you can, is kind of the meat, dairy, fats, oils, and fermented materials. But you certainly cannot put that in a worm bin. Okay, that's good to know. That's good to know. You mentioned compost tea a second ago. Can we kind of get into compost tea for a little bit? Yeah. All right. Compost tea, what I like, I prefer the term compost extract. And what it is, is is a liquid version of compost. And so what we're doing is we're putting that finished, only ever finished compost into a pail of water. And we're letting it sit and periodically stirring it around to suspend a lot of the particles. Uh, the compost particles, get that back into solution and mix it up a little bit. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to extract the microbial and chemical portion of the compost. So a lot of the nutrients, the 
soluble nutrients as well as you're creating an environment for microbes that are in the compost to uh, proliferate and grow and um, uh, reach the highest population that they can. So really what we're doing is not tea. I know it might look like tea, but just because it's brown doesn't mean that you know, we should be calling it like vanilla extract right you're extracting part of the whole and that's what we're doing with compost extract we're extracting a part of the whole not all of it but what it allows us to do especially mid-season is we can apply this as a foliar applicant for disease prevention or we could do it as a soil drench when we can't get in there with solid compost because we don't want to disrupt the plants that are growing in there so you didn't mention aerating your compost extract. Do you have or like kind of what is your thought process on aerated compost extract versus non-aerated compost extract? Yeah, I did a lot of my graduate career thinking about that. Yes. And, and examining it. And aerated, there's pros and cons. The pros of aerated is that you create a larger community of microbes. So individuals in there of microbes, you have a greater quantity of them. That's for sure because you're feeding them oxygen and they can thrive a little bit more. The other pro to aerated is that you can reduce the production time to anywhere from 24 hours to three days is usually what I found. I wouldn't do anything less than 24 hours. And I know a lot of people out there in the industry, they would promote and try to sell that you can make it in an hour. And I'll say that, yes, you can, but if you want to maximize your output, which in this case is going to be maximizing the microbial content. In microbiology, under the best situation, when we're trying to grow microbes, doesn't matter what kind of microbes, we always use 24 hours. So we plate them up on the best food that they can have. We put them under an incubation at the best temperature for them to grow, and we let it sit overnight. And so we wouldn't ever do anything less in microbiology. So I, that's why I suggest 24 hours minimum, three days, you really reach your peak of growth. So those are the pros. Some of the cons to aerated is that it requires more equipment, requires electricity, and it has a reduced shelf life. So you can't just make it and then let it sit. You have to continuously aerate it until you're ready to apply it. The reason for that is that once you discontinue that aeration and that oxygen source, the microbes that are there are going to rapidly consume all the dissolved oxygen in the water to the point when they do that, now you have a microbial crash because they can't exist under non-aerated conditions. And I'll say non-aerated doesn't mean anaerobic. It just means you're not aerating. If you take a lake, for example, it's non-aerated in this situation, but oxygen is constantly diffusing into it. When it rains, anytime you break the surface of water, oxygen is get, going into it. Oxygen is dissolving into it and being released constantly in, in a lake. And that's the situation we have with non-aerated compost. And really, non-aerated compost teas are, that's what was done originally. And the earliest reports I've read with, at least for disease suppression using compost teas were with non-aerated back in the early 80s. And so in this situation, let me back up with the another thing with aerated is you typically have to put the material into a bag. You have to contain it somehow uh, so that it doesn't block your source of aeration. Uh, with non-aerated, you don't need a bag, which means that you have greater contact 
with water than the aerated or bagged system. And so what we would do, and you can do this, any backyard person can do this right now, 10A, just taking a five-gallon bucket and a spoon to stir. Take um, a small amount of compost, let's say one cup of compost, put that into five gallons of water, stir it once a day, keep a lid on it so no sunlight gets into it, and but don't keep it sealed, make sure oxygen can still get into it. You just don't want sunlight. And stir that for one week. And then if you stop stirring it, you still created a stable environment for microbes. And stirring means you go out there and stir it for 20 seconds just to resuspend the particles back into solution instead of being on the ground. And so you can do that and then you can apply it. You can also let it sit for a couple of weeks until you're ready. You, As long as you're not adding too much, you're not getting too much of a compost to water ratio, you really want to keep it very small. So a cup or uh, less than a gallon for sure than five gallons. And so like a one to 10, I wouldn't go for a one to five. One to 10, one to 20, one to 50. That's still ad- adequate amount of material for you to extract those microbes that are in there and give them an environment. So the pros to non-aerated is simpler system, that it's a stable solution. Uh, the, some of the cons is that it takes longer to produce those microbes. So I often recommend seven to 10 days to generate the, your material. The other con is that you're going to have a slightly lower microbial count, and it could be in the orders of, of magnitude. What we know from a lot of studies is that the microbes that we produce in compost, all of those, not all of them are going to survive in compost tea. They're not going to survive in water. It's two different environments. Additionally, even the ones that we have in compost tea and we put them back into the environment, into our garden, not all of those are going to survive in the environment now. It's a different situation. We've gone from solid to liquid, now back to solid, and now we have sun, we have UV UV radiation. So only a subset can survive. What we also know is that those that survive, only a subset that we have learned have any impact on plant growth or association with plant growth. So, you know, 10 to the 7th versus 10 to the 9th microbes that you might find in this liquid solution, really only a thousand of them only survive in the environment and have something to do with plant growth. Okay. So how long can we store a non-aerated tea like or extract? Because that's the type of extract that I make. I just get big 25-gallon buckets and I'll throw a bunch of different like leaf waste and even compost and then some water and then I let it sit. Uh, But I'll let it sit for months at a time and continuously add to it. How long is it good for? My best way of answering that is to reference some of the work that I did at Cornell. A colleague of mine, Dr. Allison Jack, and I, when we were studying these kind of questions, we were addressing that, how long is it stable? We were addressing that from a standpoint of how long can we let this sit and still suppress the plant disease that we were examining? And it was a soil-borne plant pathogen, and so how long can it suppress that after sitting? And we would do a, I think it was a 10-day extraction period, and then we would put that into our pathosystem where we're trying to suppress this disease. And it was effective, and it was consistently effective. And so we know we had a system that worked that we could examine. We started asking questions from an industry standpoint. You can't make it if you're trying to sell this, which there's an entire industry on trying to sell this product and sell these systems. And 
from an industry perspective, seven to 10 days isn't enough time to ship this material. So can we let it sit on our shelf for months and still be effective and still have that claim that it can suppress the store of on pasture? So what we did, we were doing it in five gallon batches. We let it sit for six months was the one study that we did. We let it sit for six months and it was almost us just forgetting about it, but we were maintaining the conditions. Uh, it was temperature, and it was undisrupted, and we let it sit six months and we put it back into that same path system and it was still disease suppressed. So I'd say that's why I could say with some confidence that it has a greater stability than aerated. And from a biological standpoint that we were examining is the aerated systems we did observe a noticeable microbial collapse. And we have stored aerated systems. I have done this myself too afterwards. Stored aerated systems and in the same conditions where, you know, it's not a tight lid, but it's just sitting there after maybe days or weeks, depending on what you put in there and how much you put in there, you start getting a sulfur smell, an anaerobic smell coming out of it. Everybody thinks I'm crazy when I tell them that non-aerated compost extract is better than aerated compost extract. To be honest, I've gone through so many discussions on that topic, and a lot of people are just thinking emotionally. They believe something, whether or not it's true or not, and when you start thinking emotionally about something like this, you stop thinking rationally, you stop listening to reason, you stop listening to a lot of the research that's out there, and unfortunately, that's some of those misconceptions they pervade in, in the audience that's out there and that's buying into this. Uh, but I will say that both systems are effective. There's plenty of research on both of them. It comes down to the practitioner and who's making it. I told you from the beginning of this interview that I'm cheap. I don't want to buy fertilizer <laughs> and I don't want to buy an expensive system and then plug it in and have to spend electricity. Knowing full well that you would know, if it would be Almost 50 years ago, this is what people did. They did non-area. Right. They didn't have bubblers. They didn't have that. And that was effective back then and still effective now. Okay, I agree. All right, man, I have one more question, and then I'm going to stop asking you about compost. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Can you tell me what, I don't know, the three to five benefits of using compost in your garden are? Sure. And there's three benefits. There's a biological component, and that's all the microbes that we're adding into it. You're also, with adding these microbes, some of them have disease-suppressive properties. Some of them help turn over nutrients to make them available for the plant. And some of them are that just in there to help break down other organic matter in your soil to make it things a healthier environment for uh, plants to grow. So that's the biological component. The chemical component is all the nutrients that you get from it. What we, I think the latest number I've heard is that plants require 17 essential nutrients for growth and reproduction. And when you buy a fertilizer, you're only going to get three. So it's got NPK, whatever high nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium they have in there. Plants require 14 other nutrients, like calcium, for example, to grow. And um, rich, you know, NPK, C, magnesium, sulfur, all these other things that plants require, my compost can do that in varying quantities. Uh, so we're supplying a lot of micro and macronutrients and that's the chemical component. The third one is the physical component 
uh, the physical benefit is that you're adding a lot of organic matter and you're improving the structure of your soil when you're doing that. In a way, kind of probably appropriate way to say that we're aerating the soil, but we're reducing bulk density of our soil. So we're more organic matter. Basically, the darker your comp, your soil looks, the more organic matter um, in the the most basic way of thinking about it, the more organic matter you can say that your soil has, and that's going to have a greater benefit for soil health for the plant, producing healthy plants, and then healthy food. Okay. And do you get these same benefits whenever you use compost extract? Oh, but you get much less in the chemical because of the biological. That's probably the best benefit you're getting when you're making the, the compost teas and extracts is uh, the biological component. You can't, the nutrients in the chemical component, it's only going to be the soluble nutrients. So it's not all of them. Some of those nutrients are bound to the solid particles. And so they're not going to be released into the water. And nutrients don't grow. Nitrogen doesn't grow. It's an element. So you only get what's in there. So it's a, a much less amount of it. And then as far as the physical component, I'd say almost it's negligible. You really don't improve the structure of your soil by adding liquid compost. But if I apply it foliarly and it gets on the leaves, then that's when the leaves are getting the biological benefits. I mean, the plant is getting the biological benefits. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And if you're applying it foliarly, it's almost as a preventative. So you would do it regularly. I should be doing it probably another month anticipating septoria leaf blight on my tasty tomatoes. <laughs> okay. It's not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed to work, but it's one of the general beneficial properties of any composted substrate or liquid compost. Good to know. So I want to say thank you for taking time out of your day for hopping on the show and kind of just talking compost with me, man. I feel like we cleared up a lot of misconceptions people may have, especially with the uh, compost extracts. Before I let you go, I need you to do more than one thing. First, I need you to like, comment, subscribe to the podcast. Second, I need you to tell a friend or two about the show if you enjoyed it. And if you have anybody you think I need to talk to, I should interview. Send the name over, put it in the comments, or send me an email. I grow at Big City Gardener. And check me out, man, on Instagram and on all social media platforms, Big City Gardener. We out. Oh, almost forgot. Just grow it.